And it's fascinating to me, even going from this conversation, we've got, you're betting the world on generative AI. What's going to happen to the future of national policy and U.S.-China relations to like, a new technology? I'm going to do sexy time. This podcast contains the arguably witty banter of two friends, Skippy and Doogles, that like to debate about investing. The content is intended to be entertaining and for informational purposes only, not investment advice. You should do your own research and consult a financial professional before using any of the information in this podcast, and especially before investing. There he is. Yeah, I'm here. There Just he like is. every week. There he is, man. Sometimes I, I come on here and I'm like, that's him. That's him. Even I get awestruck sometimes. I right, call me the coach prime of investing. What can I say? <laughs> they, they do. They do. Unproven? No. Hall of <laughs> Famer. Coach, Pri- coach Prime is not proven. I'll tell you that much. I think right he's got now. a gold jacket. Come on. It's, it's, <laughs> that's true. It's kicking off soon, though. I'm very excited. We've got a couple more weeks. I'm very excited for that season My, kickoff. Yeah, sorry. My um, podcasting skills. Unproven. There you go. But I'm oh. in the investing Hall <laughs> yes, of Famer. There say? you go. That's very true. Speaking of unproven, Mr. Michael Burry wants everything to crash, has billions of dollars saying everything's going to crash. Is that proven? There's a lot to the story, Diggles. First of all, he doesn't have billions of dollars betting against the crash. We'll get into that in a second. He made quite a social media storm unintentionally because people didn't know how to read his 13F. But the funniest uh, memes going around with him is Michael Burry has predicted whatever, like, 15 of the last two crashes he's, yes. he's become branded as this perma bear uh which makes me chuckle but hey he's still in the game this is what i kept thinking about all week is like he he took a bet against basically yes uh, stocks this week and it's true that he has been bearish on u.s stocks probably more than most or maybe more vocally than most but he's not bankrupt he's still in the game he has plenty of money he's doing just fine i don't understand the criticism necessarily it's fine to be defensive if that's your approach i didn't read about criticism what i read was what you were discussing around how he's this is the person that bet against the housing market and we all saw what happened then now he's betting against the stock market aggressively with 80 percent of his portfolio what does that mean right that is the that's the narrative which um okay so let's just dive into the nuts and bolts unfortunately i didn't i didn't calculate the true numbers but i'll give you the gist of exactly what's going on here if you have the true numbers too let's go for it but so on his 13f it shows up that he did put options against spy s&p 500 and put options against qqq nasdaq 100 with a market value of gosh almost 1.6 billion dollars um, Billions, which would which would represent ninety three percent of his portfolio. What mm. people failed to understand with this really caused a buzz when it first released, whatever Monday, Tuesday morning last week, is that that's the value of these put options if they actually hit. That's not the value of his bet. The value of his bet is probably significantly different. Now we yeah. don't know the expiration date or the terms of these puts. But call it maybe two percent of that, it, you know, yeah. is is his real bet. Now that is still a significant bet because if 
it doesn't hit, he, he loses all that money. But we don't know if he bet, you know, three months out or three years out, really. We, we don't know anything about this other than he's bearish on U.S. stocks at the moment. And I think there's plenty of reasons to be. And we also, with 13Fs, we also don't know if he still even holds the bet. Exactly. Yeah. This is 45 days ago. And this was the individual, if you all recall, 10 months ago that only owned prisons. And so the the swiftness at which he will adjust his portfolio is like Jonathan. Jonathan Swift. Jonathan, Jonathan Swift. Was that that's too I went too far? He just he changes his portfolio a heck of a lot. So who knows exactly what it was? It could have been a hedge for a moment, it could have been a bet for the future. Who knows? But it I I found it the the narrative around it I did find to be fascinating. Because if, if you think about that narrative, 93%. Of his portfolio betting against the U.S. stock market is aggressive. Yeah, I mean, this made me want to like just crawl into a hole, go on vacation, and <laughs> and not because like uh, Twitter slash X has changed their algorithm recently, where it's uh, what gets promoted to the top of their feed is more based on replies than it is likes and mm. the and stuff. And so the doomsday scenario got sent to the top of the feed, and I felt like that was amplifying bad news because the the tweets that generated conversation were the ones that misinterpreted the 13f it was a lot of people going that either that's crazy or that doesn't make sense and then those go to the top of the feed and it so there was a dude a fairly popular dude who literally wrote a tweet about i don't often follow 13f's but the Michael Burry news really caught my attention. And what I did today is I bought some puts on spy. He misread, he misinterpreted the information. He actually made a trade based on it. I mean, come on guys. Like you're just caught up in the noise at that point, run away and do something else. Put your phone down. And when we were talking about gurus, you know, a couple of weeks ago, there's this, this feeling, I believe, that people get that's, well, they know something I don't know. I think you were mentioning something around that. Like, if, you, if there's information that if you don't necessarily have access to a whole bunch of information, you're a retail investor. There's an assumption that you make that folks have insight, information, whatever it might be that you don't have, which many people, I mean, if you take like a Seth Klarman, they do have information you don't have. Yeah. yeah. But in, in Michael Burry, I'm sure also has information you don't have, but you don't know what their bet actually is, is based on. We, we said that a million times. So I uh, I think what you just mentioned, put your phone down, I think is exactly right. Get outside. Go for a hike. Giggles, that's some wisdom. And that's the show, guys. Go <laughs> yeah, for a hike. Go, go for a hike. Take a hike. All right. Now, while you're on your hike, uh, you can put your earbuds in and continue to listen to the show. What's next in your fishbowl, Giggles? I found, I tell you what, this post this week, that I think the spirit of this, like the this type of question, is the type of question that is so healthy to, to ask. The question is this. What if generative AI turned out to be a dud? It's by Gary Marcus. Now, this wasn't a statement, right? There's no statement here. He's not saying generative AI is a dud. But the question is super valuable. I'm going to read... A little sousson from this to tell you why I think this is valuable. Here we go. If hallucinations, he he actually closes with this, so spoiler alert. 
If hallucinations, for those that don't know, hallucinations are when generative AI starts to talk about some bunch of nonsense. If hallucinations aren't fixable, generative AI probably isn't going to make a trillion dollars a year. And if it probably isn't going to make a trillion dollars a year, it probably isn't going to have the impact people seem to be expecting. And if it isn't going to have that impact, maybe we should not be building our world around the premise that it is. Oh, you making squinty eyes. So I'm curious about your view. What I like about this question here and the point that's made in this paragraph is when there's such a strong belief that a thing is going to occur, and he's talk, he talks about building our world around the premise that it is, when there's such a strong belief, there's infrastructure that's built, there's narrative that goes into it, there's work, there's jobs, there's all sorts of stuff that is impacted by a speculation. And the question here is, can we just imagine for a second if that speculation doesn't happen and you've now just built your infra, like your house of cards potentially built off of it? Did you hear like my Bane voice in there? I don't know why, why that just happened. <laughs> but I, I have questions. Questions for you first. Go for it. Go for it. Who's saying that AI is going to make a trillion dollars a year? The... Let me give you some context. Apple is the most valuable company in the world. Valued mm -hmm. at about three trillion, and yes. they're not at a price to earnings ratio of three right now. They're not making a trillion dollars a year or anywhere close to it. So, who, where's that premise even come from? I don't. He doesn't in here. I do not believe. I'm going to take another look, but give some kind of equation around it. It's. I believe that a trillion dollars is directional, but it makes okay. sense to me. Because if you think about the like globally, this is talking globally about what AI is is um, the premise of what it's meant to do or expected to do. People are talking about how you're going to replace entire industries, how they're going to be like robots that are built around whatever. You look at like what's happened with um, Nvidia stock, right? If you add all this stuff up, a trillion doesn't seem okay. No, I can wild. I can live with that premise. I guess there's some some treats, tweets from Benedict Evans in this article saying like, basically I've used uh, chat GPT for a year and a half and it's kind of cool, but it's not really moving the needle for me. It's, it hasn't actually fulfilled the hype. That's basically how I feel about it. And I think maybe just in the past six to eight weeks, Dougals, a lot has changed here because there the hype cycle of this went off the charts at some point. It was like there will be no more jobs and Nvidia stock will go to seven thousand dollars a share. And uh, you know, but yep. lately I just I just don't see the buzz. And when I play around with it, I think it's cool. Um, I especially like the the photo creation stuff. But the photo creation is almost a perfect example. It's like this cool image that you can't really do anything with. It's like, wow, that that looks neat. But how does this change my life? Usually it doesn't. And in that Benedict Evans tweet, or X, uh, whatever, that's up here. He One of the, the points in it is mentioning how there isn't yet that killer app, so to speak. And so he says... It may be the new PC, but we don't have the spreadsheet or word processor yet, which were early applications of the PC that really took it mainstream. Now, what we do have is what Skippy was talking about about not quite a year ago is search. 
is still a fascinating and like solid use case for AI. But on the everyday consumer front, it they, yeah we we don't have like that application um, that exists yet. So that's why I think that this this question is a really important one because in everyday convos, I hear maybe not trillion dollar bets, well definitely not trillion dollar bets, but these these bets where like the conversation is such around well what are we gonna do what are, like what is your what is your team doing what is your team doing with AI how are we using AI what you know it's just like do we need to reconstruct the fullness of how we work? I understand the idea of saying we should make sure that we understand this thing, that we're like staying on on top of how it's moving because there should be impact, there are productivity increases, like you know, you can all that stuff I get. But sometimes it does feel like the conversation goes to re-architect to make sure that we're ready. I hear you. And I think in your industry, maybe that's more relevant than it is in mine i i was really fascinated with chat gpt for a while in terms of like writing basically using it for copywriting and it eventually after say three weeks to five weeks of use became it reminded me of like a former employee i had managed who wasn't a particularly good writer and would take three key points and turn it into like a seven page email Bunch and, of fluff. And it's like this this doesn't work at all you know like <laughs> this just wastes more time for me because you're putting in a bunch of fluff to try and i don't know explain or have a large output when and a large output is not needed you know the more you work with executives how a lot of times the ceo of the company wants you to write like one thing in the title of the email and that's it like i need x <laughs> <laughs> that's all they yes. want it, it feels like the opposite of that where it adds complexity to the writing to try and sound smart or something and it's like no ai this this doesn't actually help me at all yeah i'm gonna read one more paragraph here and i think in my opinion he takes it a little too far in this but i still think that the, the point people should internalize this point so he's saying if, if ai is going to be like the next big thing right and so if AI is not going to be bigger than fire and electricity, right, if that turns out to be mistaken, or at least doesn't bear out in the next decade, it's certainly possible that we could wind up with what in hindsight is a lot of needless extra tension with China, possibly even a war in Taiwan over a mirage, along with a social media level fiasco in which consumers are exploited in news and misinformation rules the day because governments were afraid to clamp down hard enough. Again, may have taken a little too far, but the point here is that there are, in national policy, there are conversations that are, how do we make sure that we protect dot, 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 something around the conversation of AI, and what could that lead to before we even know what the heck it is? I don't know enough about national policy and you know global security and whatnot, but I think this is a good point. I think it's the right question to ask. I like the question. Unfortunately, that's not changing because here's this thing that when when people relate artificial intelligence to military operations it always goes to the sci-fi movie where the planes fly themselves and the the robots do the battling for you whatever yeah. star wars you name it right and so someone that goes uh it's crappy at writing my emails is different than two of military superpowers being like Yes, but if their fighter jets are going to be better than ours when they're unmanned, 
that means they have this huge advantage over yeah. us. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The funny thing about that hypothesis, I don't even know how we got here, but like <laughs> in that hypothesis, who cares about the fighter jets? Because it's really whoever drops the nuclear bomb. They're really, you know, like you get yeah, to yeah. the end of days pretty quickly. Um, but that's why that tension is not going away because there's high level people in both governments that are going to say, I don't care about all these other applications that matter to Skippy and Dougal's. This is the application yeah, you, that matters to me. And, and, and I get you making this, you making this real tangible, taking it literals. But my, my broader point, I'll even, I'll bring this back to our general world of investing and investing psychology right quick. What I, when I read this, and this comes out to the global scale and what I was just talking about. But when I read this and think about it from that, the investment psychology lens, think about portfolio bets, think about concentration. When people get caught up in the narrative of a particular equity or set of equities or betting against the market, whatever it might be, you get caught up in that. You go, I'm making this bet because of insert belief here. And it's so valuable to ask the question of what if this belief is not true? Now what happens? And if what happens, if you if you've done all your homework, you have the, you know, you've done the research, you got all that, blah, blah, blah. And the answer is, I lose money, that might be okay. If the answer is my portfolio fails and I'm out of the game, be careful. Yeah. Yeah. And and part of what Gary Marcus is is positing, at least in this, is in there some ways that we might be betting the whole house mm-hmm. on this. What if it's wrong? I love the questions. I mean, it's appropriate. These questions should be asked and they should be answered. It's funny that people immediately seem to want to go to U.S.-China relations, Taiwan, <laughs> everything else. It's funny. I mean, it, for those two countries, it's unfortunate that I can't just be more like handshakes. Let's do some things in good faith and work together. It, but that's probably too much to ask, too. People are funny that way. Though. Like there isn't the idea. Human beings have this idea that if you say, yeah, what if what if we were just cool for the next bit? Like, what if we just yeah, just chill for a yeah, little just bit? Chill. Like, like it's, it's incapable not attacking each other. We're incapable of doing that. Yeah, agreed. You know that, um, uh, is it Keanu Reeves, his his quote that's going around that says, like, as, as I got older, I, I, like, don't even have the time for the nonsense. So if someone comes up to me and says one plus one equals five, I just go, cool, man, that's awesome. Good to hear. <laughs> like, <laughs> kind of just, we need some Keanu Reeves in our life and just be like, yeah. hey, we're good. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Go have fun sure. over here. That doesn't bother me. One plus one <laughs> equals five. Yeah. This is this is representative of what humans like to do. There's this woman last night. So went to this concert. Woman walks up to the row that we're sitting in, and wanted some conflict from the moment she got to the row. Yeah, like was go. seeking conflict. So at the end of the row, we could hear her look over and go there's going to be somebody in our seats. We're like, what does that like? That's a different statement than, Oh, there's someone sitting in our seats. Like she was like, there's going to be like, I am going to will that into existence. So then she scoots down the row. Everyone has to stand up. 
scoots yeah. down the row, gets to us. And it's the the seats are the ones right next to my wife and I that are in in conflict here. She goes, that's our seats. And the two people sitting there went, um, I, I think they're our seats. She's like, those are our seats. She was and in they're, the wrong they're, section, right? Yeah, exactly. Right. <laughs> but she was she was so from the moment that she was coming down. So first of all, there was a declaration that she has now willed there will be people in her seats. Then she was from the moment that she then started talking, I knew those weren't her seats because of the confidence. Like when someone comes with that level of confidence that it's it's their seats, I was like, there's something you're she's so confident that she had to have missed a fact. You, yeah. do, you know, do you know what I mean? Exactly. And so, so then I'm like, okay, how do I because I'm looking at her phone? I'm like, that's these aren't her seats. I'm like, how do I get in? I see the the game of double dutch going on right in front of me and i'm like how do i jump in <laughs> how do i jump in here without escalating um and so i just kind of like pointed <laughs> to <laughs> to like the the section and then she just went oh okay and i was like what why did you and i anyway that's what that's what happens though that's what people do like you come in okay. we need to push tension and conflict we have to we desire it okay what's the next in your fishbowl i don't like I don't like this, Dougals, but I'm going to call some people dumb, okay? <laughs> okay. And, and not anyone in particular, just humans. Humans are mm. dumb sometimes, all right? That's true. That's very true. Bloomberg, Bloomberg did a breakdown of how people feel, if they feel rich, if they feel poor. Mm. And there's, there's one quote for me, like the whole article is good, but it really breaks down to this. Um, so if you make 175K uh, per year, you're roughly in the top 10% of earners, roughly. Okay. Um, so those making at least $175,000 a year, which is roughly the amount to crack the top 10% of US tax filers, in that realm, a quarter of those people told us that they were either very poor, poor, or getting by, but things are tight. By income level, there is no classification that they are poor or very poor. It's very impossibility. Poor. <laughs> very it means poor. they're in the top 10% of US tax filers. But by how they feel, they can feel very poor. And a quarter, I'm not talking like, you know, the 5% out there. I'm talking a quarter of these people feel that they're basically either barely getting by to very poor humans are just stupid man that that means you don't know how to manage your finances in any way shape or form it means you're completely caught on the hedonic treadmill and every time you got the pay raise you just had your expenses rise equally so you can continue to feel very poor I understand how this happens, but I just continue to be flabbergasted by it. There are, in this piece, there are some anecdotes in here and then some quotes they have about like when they talk to some of the folks that, that were in these camps as to like what's behind that feeling. Part of it is about location. So there's this woman, Deborah Corbin, 67 years old, retired in Naples, Florida. And she says, 
when I'm in Southern Illinois, it's where, it's where I'm from, I feel rich. When I'm in Naples, I feel blessed. Down here, it's hard to feel rich because they're billionaires down here. Yeah. I get the, the part of the location piece that I do get is if you, if you have $10,000 and you're in rural India, that can go a long way, like cost of living wise. But this is much closer to how I feel because of where other people are. If I have a million dollars and you have a billion dollars, that doesn't make me less rich. It makes you feel less rich. No, it, I mean, it, it could. This, for, for Deborah, it could. But it, like, why? If you say if richness is measured by the amount, like my purchasing power, my purchasing power does not change based on your purchasing power. My student loan payoff does not change your student loan payoff. <laughs> Do you see what I mean? But people have to compare. I see what you mean, but it, uh, there's a little semantics there, which I understand, but it's y your feeling of being rich is different than you if you are actually rich. And this article is about how you feel. Yeah, yes, yeah, you get, can have get two that. people that are very rich in Naples, Florida, uh, but one could be 10 times richer. And because of that, the other rich person probably doesn't feel rich. And there's a difference between not feeling rich and feeling very poor. Absolutely. Like, oh, absolutely. Do, do you know what poor is? I don't think the, I think these people have probably lost touch, uh, not throwing shade at anyone, but yeah, if you're make, if you're in the top 10% of earners and you feel poor, you've probably lost touch with what poor is, right? Can we say that? Yeah. Yes. And very poor. <laughs> yes. Very poor. I mean, that, this is for really though, this is a, it's, it's really important. And we've, we've actually hit on different pieces elements of this same like conversation a few times over the last maybe even couple of years around like America losing its hustle, its touch on like the value of the American dream, the view on the, it's like, there's, it's kind of all around that same theme. And I also enjoyed in this piece, how they, they broke down different angles. So you have the premise, the basic premise of it, or the foundation of it, I should say, is what you brought up around how much money do you make? And do you feel rich or poor? That's the, the basic foundation. Um, and then they started going to, as I was just talking about, do you uh, location. Do you think moving to a different part of the country would make you feel richer or poor? Most people, no matter whether they felt rich or poor, said, no, it won't make no difference. It was like about 48-ish percent of people, something like that, yeah. said it wouldn't make a difference. Around 30% of people said it would make them feel richer. If they moved, what I thought was interesting there, though, is my expectation, given if I just read the rest of the piece and hadn't seen this chart, this graph, I would have assumed that more people that stated they felt very poor would have said they would have felt richer. If you just if you extrapolate that point, that going to a place where people have a different financial situation than you can make you feel richer or poor, then moving should have an impact. 
So I thought that was surprising to me. Then there was this question around worrying about money. Something around 25% of the very poor worry about money. That actually felt kind of low. But then you get like another 20% of people that say comfortable and another probably about 10% of people that are rich or very rich that worry about money. This might come down to the definition of worry. I don't know how people define worry. But because if if you take worry as I think about on a frequent basis, then I can kind of get that. Um, that might be why you got rich. It's because you think about money on a frequent basis. But I thought that those those points were 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 like were interesting takes building off that foundation. Let me add to that. Here's one thing. I don't know that this matters, but it was kind of interesting. If your goal in life was to feel rich or very rich and you believe this survey data two things that appear to move the needle there are owning a home and having a a home that's worth a significant amount more than half a million even a million is better and then having retirements accounts worth more than a million if you do both those things you own a home that's valuable and you have a large retirement i mean this is kind of common sense right Diggles? you were less likely to feel very poor <laughs> when you're in the top 10% <laughs> of earners. Uh, but it still might be worth something because going through life feeling very poor doesn't sound fun to me. No, <laughs> it, it does not. It's worse to be very poor, I'd Much imagine. Worse. I want the flip side of the study because... <laughs> This is just like classic personal finance, behavioral economics type stuff. There are lots of people that would classify as poor, that would feel rich based on the blessings they have, based on the times they get to spend with their family, based on the, the other blessings of their life. Those people have got it figured out in a way. Like I, I'd love to see the flip side of this. Because basically, all this says is a high level is life's not about money. And if you're living your life for money, uh, you're doing it wrong. And we've also seen more where people, there's not hope. Like there was something in here. I can't remember what, the, but it was like, I don't, I feel poor and I will always feel poor. Or like, I don't feel rich and I never will. It's something like that. I, I feel like I, I saw a quote in here. And that's where it's like, that's just a some psychosis sorry to take us there but yeah it's all um, right i mean the like this article ends with a guy in texas who owns a texas house owns the hawaii condo and is stressing about paying his son's twenty five thousand dollar a year tuition i mean dude that's not you <laughs> You're not poor. <laughs> you got some lectures in there. There's plenty of expenses that we could streamline and make your life a lot easier. But it's, I don't know if it's keeping up with the Joneses thing or what. Like, it's not all the, of those expenses are necessary, man. Who are the Joneses, by the way? I, I've been trying to figure that out my whole life. I thought they were the Dougalses. <laughs> the the Dougalses. That was the original statement. I just didn't catch on. What's, uh, what's in your fishbowl? Oh, oh, I got to talk about sexy time. Don't do it, Diggles. You don't have to. <laughs> I, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. So 
over the last few months, there's been continuous buildup. I mean, it's been happening over time, but over the last few months, there's been more continuous buildup of Cruise and Waymo specifically, the the companies that are building toward autonomous vehicles, getting closer and closer to something becoming real. Okay. Mm-hmm. And finally, San Francisco was like, it's time. Cruise, Waymo, it's time. You can do this. You can do 24-7 autonomous vehicles. Do your thing. And there are some issues, right, that have been hit. Like there was a um there was a, a, a not a pileup, what I want to call it, like a like a traffic jam that was yeah. created because they all got confused. Um, there was a car that drove into wet cement and got stuck there, like straight out of Looney Tunes. Yeah. There's all sorts of stuff. Yeah, stuff's gonna happen. It's gonna happen. We're building toward technology. But then this industrious group of individuals said, I know what speaking of killer apps, let's go back to that AI conversation. I know what the killer app for autonomous vehicles is. Sexy time. <laughs> you, you can you Explain the article a little more specifically here. <laughs> According to what is this? I'm beating all around the bush. The San Francisco standard, uh, people, some people, I mean, they found a few people. This is where the sample size is. I'm always like, okay, so you found someone who might be lying to you because you didn't check the video evidence, <laughs> whatever. They found some dude named Alex and some girl named Meg or something that claimed <laughs> to have had sex in a robo taxi. There we go. I got I got it out for you. No, it's not just I, when I say sexy time. This is like aggressive, multi multiplicative copulation. Okay. Well, this article is bizarre because <laughs> the girl's like, "Yeah, I just jumped into the vehicle in a robe, wearing some slippers." <laughs> like, okay. I have a take. It's about a one sentence take. You're on video, people. I understand the desire. I understand that this is probably cheaper than a hotel room or whatever. But like, come on, you're on video. Everyone knows you're on video. It sounds like they're not checking the video in real time. Good for them because that's creepy. But like, I don't really get the premise here, guys. There's probably (laughs) better options. San Francisco is going to San Francisco. That's the, that's it. I had to talk about that though. Had to talk about that. Like, what's your big takeaway that I, I'm kind of like, all right, this might be uh unintended consequence of things that happen. What one, they show a picture in here. Looks like this is a massive space because I, because there's no driver. I don't know. I haven't been in one of these, but it looks like, there's like at least four seats that face each other and stuff. Is it really that nice? Have you actually I've been, not in been one in of one. these things? I've not been in one. No, so I don't know. But it, it's got to be inviting. I mean, if you're going in there and you're laundry and your robes and whatnot, like it's good. <laughs> I don't know. Did it pull right up to like a house? Like I don't, were you walking through San Francisco in this robe? That, that I don't know. I don't know how you got there. My takeaway is that it is, human beings are fascinating. And it's fascinating to me, even going from this conversation, we've got, you're betting the world on generative AI, what's going to happen to the future of national policy and US-China relations to like, oh, new technology? I'm going to do sexy time. That is the beauty of humanity. I'm laughing over here for so many reasons, but the robe thing does not shock me at all. I, as you know, I office in a college town 
and you would be shocked at the amount of people I see walking around town in rope. Like that's no no sweat for the right crowd. Um, hilarious. All right, that was maybe a low point on the show. Let's um. <laughs> Uh, I'll wrap with one thing. We've talked about it before, but man, there, this debt-driven market for U.S. housing mm. continues to have. Let's talk about unintended consequences, right? So, the National Mortgage Database did a breakdown of the number of outstanding mortgage mortgages by interest rate at origination. Basically, yeah. what interest rate did you have when you bought your house? Yeah. 66% of those Dougals are under four. 23% total are under three. And 90-ish, 95%, um, that's, sorry, that's a rough estimation, are under six. Current rates are at seven. I mean, this is a, a whole thing that has ramifications for the housing market, which has ramifications for new construction which has room like this just might be the biggest domino the same more how does how does that domino start to fall in your mind okay well so on top of this again complex adaptive system so on top of this you have a lot of communities austin texas is a recent example where if you believe the data you have twelve thousand airbnbs and three thousand homes per sale you have people who are locked into their homes at, say, a 3% rate that have no desire to sell because the economics of moving somewhere are so drastically different if they're going to have a 7% mortgage. Yeah. It's a 3% mortgage. It just seems like we're in a gridlock time for mobility and housing. And that has room. So if you just talk on the mobility front, that has ramifications for companies trying to attack attract talent from different locations if you're talking about housing housing is this huge stimulus of the u.s economy so people frequently talk about the best way to stimulate the u.s economy is cut interest rates not only because that uh, reduces the cost of debt and allow encourages people to spend but because when people buy a new house then they are almost guaranteed to go to home depot to do these chores, to hire the contractor, to get the kitchen the way they want it. And that cascades, that spending cascades through the economy. It's just, yeah, I don't know that I can articulate it well, but it's a big deal. Oh, it's definitely a big deal. We don't know exactly where that's going to go, but I think what you're talking about makes sense. It, there, People are going to be stuck. I think when you don't have optionality like that, then it it creates, what's the... I don't know what the right word is some kind of like blockage in the economy yeah blockage the... is not the right word dude. <laughs> stagnation yeah there you go there you go <laughs> i tried to i like came in kind of like the uh the woman at the concert like i came in with <laughs> confidence on the word blockage and then and then you pointed at my section but no that, that it is the housing market right now is interesting and you've got, you know, there was this big deal made about Buffett getting into a few of the home builders in like the smallest way possible, yes. given given Berkshire's overall portfolio. But I, yeah, that's going to be one to watch. It's definitely going to be something to watch over the next few years. 
on the Buffett piece, let me correct or clarify something I said last week. I was talking about the number of trades in the 13F for Berkshire Hathaway. I fully understand that other people in that organization buy and sell stocks like Ted and Todd, but I'm just using it directionally. The <laughs> speculation is Ted and Todd are the one that's about the home builders, but still, you get the point. It's his organization. Yep. They're trading much more frequently than his actual guidance. Um, so yeah, just wanted to clean that up. Yeah, we'll just watch it. I mean, clearly, if you're the Fed, you're not, it'd be idiotic to cut rates simply to stimulate housing. But it also feels like the current Fed funds rate, the only thing I'm kind of confident about is that it won't stay where it is. It will either continue to go up or go down. Like, it just feels like this is not an equilibrium point. Yeah, that's interesting. I I don't know that that's true. I mean, I don't think they're going to play with it necessarily a lot. Why why not just hold where we are for a while? Like, why do you think that they're they're going to raise cut, raise cut, snip snap? Situation? Okay, so my time my time frame here is like twenty four to thirty six months. I'm not talking about anything that happens okay. in twenty twenty three. Really? Right. So okay. yeah, in twenty twenty three, I could see them being like, well, inflation's down, but. Uh, job postings in certain sectors are way up, but general employment is steady. You know, like I could totally see them being like, we don't have anything good to do. Yeah. But long, longer term, I don't know what. Let's run that hypothesis out, Dougal. So, if rates stay in the fives, mortgage rates in the sevens. And that was equilibrium for the next three years. What would the economy look oh, like? Okay. I have no, no clue. Yeah, that when you when you when you say it like that, like that to your point, that cannot be an equilibrium. But let's just think. Let's just talk through, talk it through. I mean, what would the economy look like? So obviously, there'd continue to be a gridlock in housing. I say obviously, but this is all speculation yep. and forecasting yep. is impossible. But not forever, because at some point, people have to move. Like. People just don't. Sometimes you have a forced move. You want to be closer to your family who's in bad health or or whatever else. Your kids become school age and you're determined to get into a certain district. It can't just be frozen forever, which would probably mean home prices might have to come down. But right now, because the people with low interest rates are kind of stuck, they're not putting homes on the market. I mean, it's there. We're we're getting into to your point around complex adaptive systems. Like we starting to get a territory that is so compounding in the like impact that each thing has that it's hard to figure out. But my head actually, my head starts from the other direction that then does come back to housing. So I say interest rates are higher. People have a lot of debt. If you're keeping federal Fed funds rate high, that likely means that inflation is not coming down to the levels that you want it to come down to. It's likely what that means. So therefore, prices remain elevated. Mm-hmm. Debts are high. The U.S. consumer starts to get into financial trouble. Therefore, spending comes down. Well, the U.S. consumer already spent all their last yes, month. Exactly. They spent all their excess savings from the COVID sim, uh, stimulus measures. Exactly. So that's like uh, back to its norms. It's no mm-hmm. longer elevated. At some point potentially housing gridlock forces its way out of gridlock because people need cash 
and, and they would sell their house to create that cash? If, if it comes to that point, if you're forced effectively, I don't mean when I say forced, I don't mean necessarily like eviction, but even at the point where you you need to find cash somewhere, it could lead to housing sales. Well, in that case, Dougals, if the U.S. consumer is really hurting, people take less vacations, which means the Airbnbs, if you go back to one yep. of my previous points, uh, no longer rent out. So they either are forced sales or start defaulting, which creates some new housing supply. It, this is where you get into the level of complexity that's like, who knows how that impacts what? Yeah, it's just but, impossible, right? Yeah. Um, but that, just starting from those two points that you brought up, I think that that is a like fascinating world to start to play around with and by fascinating i mean like i feel like fascinating because it can go in multiple directions but that's the direction that makes the most sense to me given where some of the static numbers are today meaning like where debt is today mm-hmm. where prices are today where u.s consumer balances for like cash is today it seems like that would lead to some sort of a a consumer as i've been calling it the consumer cliff that occurs where you're not going to go buy your burrito because you need money. And that's without even talking about significant changes in employment rates or uh, large recession. You don't need that. Um, You wouldn't even need that. Exactly. Because the the consumer could actually stay employed. Like, let's just go down to the individual. You could stay employed with your same income and all of this still occurs. You don't have to change there. Yeah. Yeah. But in this example, the amazing thing is we've talked about how complex it is and how impossible it is. And we're still leaving out like 20 oh, yeah. other factors that we know will change. <laughs> that, yes. that it'd be yeah, stupid exactly. to build a model to say an unemployment uh, rate stays at 3%. Like it, it, it'd yeah. be stupid. Yeah. There's no way that's going to happen. And there won't be a go- global conflict of X and there won't be a new pandemic and there won't be. So yeah. I think it really we are, we're back to where we started, which is this is impossible to predict, but that doesn't mean <laughs> it's not fun to talk about. Yeah, yep. I love it. All right. We had a wrap. That's a wrap. Well, thank you, everybody. Appreciate you all. Skippydoogles at gmail.com. Premium subscriptions, skippydoogles.supercast.com. Go get it. You get early episodes, you get special episodes, and we just love being supported by you all. So thank you very much. See you soon.